To be objectified is to be looked through the male gaze, and to be empowered is to use elements of the male gaze to say like, hey, fuck you, I actually like, I'm actually using this to, you know, show that I can look the way I want, despite of, despite how you look at me. Hi everyone, welcome back to Cozy Combos. My name is Haydar. Today we're going to be looking at why Hong Kongers are leaving Hong Kong in rapid numbers. Now when you think of 2020, we think of a lot of things, right? We think of obviously the pandemic, uh, we think about the tragic murder of George Floyd and how Black Lives Matter movements were happening all around the gaff. Uh, we were thinking about, you know, Tencent, TikTok, how data might be in the wrong hands, and also everybody's personal struggles and circumstances and how they dealt with isolation, death, grief, and the world just seeming in a very strange and clinical place. But one thing that came as a surprise to me was finding out about why Hong Kongers were leaving Hong Kong. The news of 2020 in Wuhan and China kind of overshadowed a lot to do with Hong Kong and what's going on over there, which is why I'm very, very glad that me and Evian crossed paths. She finished her journalism degree and actually wrote, produced, directed, and edited a whole documentary that she made herself about why Hong Kongers are leaving Hong Kong. And I thought this was really interesting. Firstly, it's an impressive feat to be able to create something all on your own. It's difficult, it's very, very difficult. But also to actually go to Hong Kong and you know say some things against the Chinese government, like it's a tremendous amount of courage and bravery that I don't really see a lot in journalism. And to see Evian being a journalist, uh, going to do things like that, using TikTok as a method of journalism, I was very intrigued to hear her thoughts about not just what's happening in Hong Kong, but the kind of person that she is, the things that she's been experiencing lately, and what she thinks the future of journalism looks like. But before I got into any of that, I had to really ask her, what made her go out and do something like this? I've always been really interested in like the video format of things because I did a lot of creative stuff, like creative writing mainly, and I always kind of liked art and stuff, but I wasn't like, I feel like I was really intim intimidated by graphic design. So I don't know when I actually got to try out using InDesign and stuff at university for the student paper that I was part of in undergrad. I got to like really exercise like my visual creativity, which was so mm. much fun. But I think it, funnily enough, it really, really, what really pulled it all together was in my final year of uni, I I did an American horror class. And um, as part of one of the funky assignments that we had to do, it was a video essay. And in that video essay, we had to kind of dissect, um, ideally like a film, um and how it kind of used and used like horror techniques to really like make the viewer think and stuff so i used a lot wow. of clips and really analyzed um this episode of atlanta by um childish gambino slash his real name which i'm really sad i don't remember D right donald now. glover yeah yes donald glover yeah. <laughs> he wrote this episode um on which is kind of slightly based off michael jackson um, and the episode was really scary, so I edited it into a video essay, and we got a really good mark for it. It was a group project, and there was a lot of beef, I'm yeah. not gonna lie. There was a lot of beef, but I did yeah. all the editing, so I was like, you know what, I tied it all together. Um, and that really, like, made me really, like, have this sense of achievement. So mm. shortly after that, I was going back to Hong Kong um, for... Um, 
just because like I was sick and tired of the lockdown here in the UK. So I went back to Hong Kong and I was like, why don't I just film a little vlog of myself and what it's like being in quarantine and traveling back to Hong Kong, which back then was like crazy. Like I wore a full suit of like gear, like a whole hazmat suit with like a face mask and eye shield um, and a whole like painter's suit because I was like so scared of going on the plane. I didn't eat or drink anything or use the toilet when I was on the plane, just 12 hours of sitting there and not moving. And then I had to like go through four rounds of checks before I finally got into a quarantine hotel. So I filmed that whole process and then I kind of blended it and analyzed how that ties into like the distrust that the Hong Kong people have towards the government um, and did like a little analysis of like what, like I did a little vlogumentary is what I called it, of mm -hmm. um, what going back to Hong Kong taught me about uh, trust in a pandemic. Um, and yeah, that was like when I really realized that was so much fun. Even though I made it on iMovie, it was so much fun. And so when I had the opportunity to, to do like video stuff um, in my master's, I was like, that's definitely what I'm doing. And I wanted this documentary to be like a testament of how much I've learned from my master's as well mm -hmm. after a year of like making videos. Um, so that was the kind of technicality of it. I really, really liked the process. I loved finding ways to do it all myself because um, that was something I really wanted to make like let the world know about i did this all on my own yeah definitely and you know you deserve that achievement because like not many people will go do it all themselves they'll delegate it to others and like they'll, or they'll say well that's a bit more like engineering and maybe in this case i'm a journalist so i'm just gonna stick to what i know in terms of trying to get like i don't know trying to write it but you know the initiative i think comes through um in your documentary as well and um i guess in your own words could you sort of explain um what it was about like what you were exploring in it yeah, I was exploring um, how a lot of Hong Kong families are moving to the UK because of the British National Overseas Scheme, which was introduced in response to the national security, security law that was enacted in Hong Kong in 2020. And the British government decided to react by providing this kind of lifeboat um, for Hong Kongers who either were involved in a protest and wanted to leave, uh, or, like, they're just not happy with how the political situation is going in Hong Kong and wanted to get out of there. So I was looking at a lot of how, like, these families who just moved here when, when the scheme first opened um, and how they were adapting to life away from home, whether it's because of, like, homesickness or, like, how they, they feel like they are deserting a lot of the activists that couldn't leave, um, who didn't have the privilege of leaving. Um, and I was kind of just interviewing them about how, like, they were living their lives and what's next for them. Um, and that was the gist of the documentary I made. Yeah, and, um, what is the national security law? Like, what, why is this a problem for a lot of Hong Kongers? So, national security law was enacted in 2020, again, in response to the protests that were happening in late 2019 to kind of early 2020, right before the pandemic hit. Um, and the law was basically enacted through the Hong Kong government and was, um, like, mainly by the Chinese, mainland Chinese government to kind of keep Hong Kong in control. Because the protests started, um, by, started because a lot of people were, like, really, really mad at the Chinese government, um, for working with the Hong Kong government to kind of shut down any political, um, uprisings and disagreements with how the country was kind of going and it was hurtling towards a, more of a mainland Chinese government style um, rule of the country. 
And a lot of people didn't like the fact that they were losing their freedom of speech and, like, freedom to protest and all of that. So, um, yeah, they started going to protests. And kind of the origins of it has been, like, has been written to death. Like, there's so many reasons why this happened from, like, years... It started kind of years and years ago, just even from, like, the colonial government... British colonial government, how they kind of set a precedent for democracy. But then afterwards, the Chinese government introduced a more like slowly start to insidiously implement a more draconian kind of mm. um style of government throughout the years leading up to 2019 um and in a mo- in kind of like a reverse timeline it all started because someone i actually don't even remember the origins that well anymore cuz <laughs> so yeah. much has happened since then but it was because um I think a Hong Kong man murdered his girlfriend in Taiwan and came back to Hong Kong and wasn't and he couldn't be like extradited or anything. Um so like it was all it all started cuz like an extradition bill was then proposed to kind of keep kind of like um arrest people like him who couldn't be extradited. Yeah. Um and a lot of people were like, "You know what? This extradition bill could really like threaten activists." who can just be extradited to mainland China um, and be, like, thrown into jail mm-hmm. um, just because they were, like, doing political activism and not actual murder. Mm. Um, so in response, to that, in response to that, there was a lot of protests and there was a government crackdown, a lot of, like, police brutality. Um, and then eventually after the pandemic hit and things kind of quieted down, the government, the Chinese government thought it would be the perfect time to, like, introduce, the, introduce national security law. That's like an excuse um, to cl- crack down on um, democracy, the remaining amounts of democracy left in Hong Kong. And it worked because a lot of mm-hmm. people, a lot of activists and organizations and newspapers have all shut down now in um, Hong Kong just because of what was happening. Um, and now, frankly speaking, Hong Kong itself hasn't changed much, but I think we'll really see that change in like five to 10 years time and by the time it's 2047 we're gonna see a very different hong kong to how it was supposed to be um all those years ago when democracy was promised to us in the 90s and 2047 because that's 50 years after you know hong kong's sort of independence right that's why you chose that figure um yeah it's that what's tragic about it is that it feels like in many ways like a lot of people saw this as inevitable once sort of England left in 97. It's just that the the Chinese government seemed to just find an opportunity to exploit and to try and like, you know, put their control over it. But in many ways, it sounds like, um, you know, from a lot of Hong Kongers that they kind of almost saw it as inevitable. Is that yeah, true? Um, yeah, 100%. I think a lot of a lot of people in 97, like, fled already because they kind of saw this happening. But I think a lot of us still had hope i guess like we still wanted our future generations like myself like other people my age and younger and older to have like this chance of like growing up in hong kong and like being part of that culture and heritage and not like having to just be removed from the roots um right away but in 1997 um but i think there was a sense of inevitability i just i think a lot of us just didn't expect it to happen within 20 years like we would just lose everything um and you know it's it's not it's not even been half um half the time we were promised to enjoy democracy it was like less than half um to just yeah. be able to live in that like 
that environment that we were we've been living in for a long time despite its colonial roots we were able to flourish for a lot of the reasons why like we had that kind of democratic government um but that that's just that's just not not going to happen anymore yeah um and i could definitely get that from your documentary that a lot of people are very like um in despair um with the fact that they almost see the future of you know hong kong culture existing in a diaspora where they just sort of interspersed throughout different areas of the world um kind of like how do you feel in regards to sort of your identity as a as as a hong konger i think just in general i guess because um correct me if i'm wrong but like you know you were born around the time of like you know england being sort of gone from hong kong and stuff so i guess tell me more about like your perspective of sort of I don't know, just being a Hong Kong and a Hong Konger in that culture. When I say that I'm a Hong Konger, um, and I feel like this definition is going to change a lot based on how Hong Kong is going to be increasingly perceived in the coming years. But when I say like I'm a Hong Konger, I'm thinking a lot about like maybe around like post twenty fourteen around that time when Joshua Wong really made a difference because it made a lot of us, like a lot of young people, think about democracy and think about what they were potentially losing in um, a few years' time. And eventually, like five years later, we saw the protests happen. So I think that period of like constantly, like pol politics being on like such a high agenda, but we were able to talk about it and protest it and go to these m huge, massive scales of like protests that's what it means to me when I say I'm a Hong Konger. I'm thinking a lot about like tw 2019 Hong Kong um, and not like 2022 Hong Kong or 1998 Hong Kong. And I'm what is about... uh, 2022 Hong Kong? Sorry, like what's um, what's the change about sort of going there? Like what, what are the notable changes? I suppose is what I'm trying to ask. I would say fear is the most notable change. Um. Uh, 2022 Hong Kong is just very much, on the surface, everything's fine. Nothing much has changed, but it's just it's just complete and utter disillusionment, um, despair, and kind of just this kind of forced acceptance of what ha what things have come to. So I think 2022 Hong Kong is quite dismal, and it's quite robotic, um, and it's quite. It's also lost a lot of the activism that it used to have mainly because that's not allowed anymore. Whereas 2019 Hong Kong, we all banded together as a city um, because we really wanted, we really hoped that we would be able to change something. And I want to say like when I'm a Hong Konger, that's the kind of Hong Kong I'm thinking of, the one full of hope and freedom to, of speech and freedom to like protest. Um, and so when I tell people I'm from Hong Kong now, I'm thinking a lot about like, the diaspora, which has its own problems, but I think when I think about being a Hong Konger, I think a lot about like being East Asian instead of simply being like part of that city. I think a lot about like what it means to be visually different from other people in another country. Um, so a lot of things like being a person of color and being someone who grew up in a very international environment who now has to adapt to very white spaces where people don't know, look like me. And I think that makes a very big difference. And it's something that I kind of increasingly think about is that I'm not, I'm not in a place where everybody else is like Chinese anymore. 
in ethnicity. I'm in a place where it's very predominantly white um, and people are less tolerant in a very different way. Like, even though I'm I'm here in the UK, I'm able to explore facets like sexuality um, and gender. Um, I'm not, I'm still, you know, very easily discriminated by people just because they can see that, like, visually I am different to them. So I think that's what it means to say that I'm, like, from Hong Kong nowadays. I think about it in terms of race instead of politics. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I mean, I feel like not to invalidate sort of what's going on in Hong Kong because it's definitely a big issue. And I think because it's sort of the Chinese government, I think even trying to make a comparison between that and like the English government, I just feel like is is kind of ludicrous and I'm not going to do that. But I think in the experience of like feeling like, you know, you're occupying a lot of white spaces and your ethnicity is, you know, incredibly visible, this sort of hybrid identity that has sort of come about as a result of colonialism, I think it seems to be a universal thing, no matter whether you're like, in my case, like brown in England or, you know, in your case, East Asian in um, Hong Kong. And, you know, I even have uh, friends who are um, black in like Saudi Arabia, but then they also go, well, you know, I'm, 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 I'm an Arab, but like, I don't, I don't feel like that because I feel almost sort of pushed out constantly of that identity too. Um, and it's just, um, I don't know, I feel like it gives me some recourse for empathy to know that actually, you know, um, this kind of idea of a hybrid identity that's sort of come about because of colonialism, because of uh, the way things just turned out to be because of migration and stuff. It's a universal experience, no matter what the details of the ethnicities are, it seems. Yeah, something that I really appreciate is when I'm able, I'm able to talk to like other people of color um about what it what it's like to be in these spaces like we may not necessarily have the same experiences of how we ended up here um but i think we experience things like just very like surface racism when people just look at you in a different way or people say things that are very microaggressive um that is a very shared experience and it's really nice being able to kind of joke about it sometimes and know that you're not alone um and kind of being able to vent through like humor um but like there are also like really nice moments to be able to talk to people of other cultures and be like you know we are going through these experiences um but we're able to relate to each other at least um like we're able to kind of unite together over certain things that keep happening to us because we're visually different yeah and on that it's still also important to never erase like the actual details of our ethnicities because they should be celebrated in my opinion in their own right um and you know it's like we exist on this binary of sort of you know white and then not white being categorized altogether and i don't like like even terms i think i i don't know where i sit with the term person of color like because i think yeah it's a convenient and seemingly respectable way to sort of like i don't know talk about someone's ethnicity without actually finding out what it is um but i find myself using it out of convenience too so i don't know how do you feel about poc as a term no oh, i genuinely like it's one of those terms where i'm like i it is easy to use that term but it just feels like such it does feel like we're being all grouped together when we are so incredibly diverse yeah. um I wish there was like a an alternative, but I feel like I I'm not the kind of person who can think of an alternative right now, and it's just really annoying. Um, I mean, the alternative would hopefully be like I don't know, not having to think about this problem, but like because it's it's true, like you know, I didn't grow up like thinking 
I am a person of color. Like that, that wasn't <laughs> my, like that never crossed yeah. my mind. Like it's, it's only in my identity insofar as I am not white. You know, do you know what I mean? Like, so that's why I feel, yeah. and I feel like it's also just once again, another way to like, you know, not try and inquire about um, people's experiences being uh, from different places. Like I would love to ask, I, I love to ask all people like, you know, where, where are you from? Not like, where are you actually from? And not any of that, yeah. but like, you know, what, what's your roots or whatever? Like, and I think that's a legitimate question. Like, I'm, I'm never offended by that. If someone asks me about my ethnicity, I'm like, yeah, I'll tell you. Cause people want to like, act like it's not there, but they still act like it is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. When people say they don't see color, come on. Yeah. We, come on. That, that's just, that's just dumb. Like, don't even try, don't even try to say that. Like, yeah. I, I think I used to be like, I really hate it when people immediately ask me where I'm from. But then mm. I'm like, um, now I'm like, if, if people ask me, where are you actually from? Then I'll be like, you, sh you shut your mouth. But like, if people ask me like, in general, like, where are you from? A lot of people kind of say like, you have this like American accent. Like, where'd you get it? Are you mm. from like the US? I'm like, no, no, yeah. I'm not. I am absolutely not American in any way, shape or form. Just in the, in the media I consume. Um, but yeah, I think I'm... I think I'm more tolerant to that question when it's right asked mm. in the right context because I think it's it's a good way of actually just you know getting to know people and like their stories and their culture. I think I'm gonna be like less afraid to ask that question now, um, but I also don't ask it just because I want to like just because like it's I'm in a silly goofy mood. I ask it when I want to like actually talk about something that we have in common. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I guess like you know East Asian, even that is almost reductive isn't it because that encompasses so many different countries and so many different like um, ethnicities which is obviously you know separate so I guess like what 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 is your ethnicity if you don't mind me asking I would say like ethnically I am Chinese um there was actually someone I interviewed who was like we want Hong Kong to be an ethnicity in itself and I think that's a very radical thought because mm. ethnicity is a very complex thing and I don't think like, I don't know, actually, if, like, you can just kind of turn nationality into ethnicity as a, as a form of empowerment. I think that's very complex, and I would say that I am absolutely not an expert in that. Um, but I think that was a very, that was a very huge statement. And I, and I was like, wow, okay, um, next question. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I would say, yeah, ethnically I am Chinese because um, I wouldn't really want to, like, kind of put that part down there are people in hong kong who think that when you call yourself chinese um not in terms of nationality that you're kind of like bound down to the mainland chinese government um which i think is a very is a somewhat problematic assumption but there are people who do that but i would clearly say that nationality wise i am from hong kong and i'm a hong konger ethnicity i am um chinese slash slash east asian um and yeah i i think i don't think i i see the need to like say like ethnically i'm not chinese i don't really see that as a necessity to kind of kind of carve out my ethnicity at all um and i think it's something interesting that i realized was like um growing up consuming american media when i think asian i think um chinese korean mm. japanese that kind of that kind of Asian. <laughs> I yeah. hate saying that that kind of Asian. But then when I came here, um, and I was doing my masters, like one of my tutors was like, in in the UK, you you don't just say Asian because you need to say like South Asian, East Asian, because there's a difference when you say Asian. A lot of like 
Asian usually means South Asian here in the UK. And I'm like, that that is a really important like difference. Um, and I think it kind of just outlines like how these terms can mean so many things because we are such diverse groups of people. When lockdown happened in March 2020, I just, it didn't feel great. You know, I would be walking down streets and people would be like, just staring at me and I'm like, stop it. And then I, w- I would have like my mask on and that back then, I was the only person wearing a mask. Masks were not a thing back then. So that did not feel, that felt a little uncomfy, I'm not gonna lie. Um, And then when I came back after lockdown in August 2020, and I was in Leamington Spa of all places. Um, and I felt really weird. Like there was there was just like people just staring at me from like the cars they were driving in, they were just looking out the window staring at me. I'm like, what what is wrong with you? I can't even give you COVID because I'm wearing a mask and I'm outside of your car crossing the street. I'm like a I'm like a mile away. Why are you looking at me like that? And then when I walk past some people, they would just kind of it, like you can just feel their eyes on you the whole time and i was like i am not about this life um but i think by by like around november 2020 it was like not like a it was not like a oh my god covid is a chinese thing that's not that wasn't the thing anymore um it was it should like never global have been a thing though like quite honestly mm. it should never have been a thing like it should I- not have been um I remember, like, being, like, when I was on campus in, like, kind of January 2020 and February 2020, it was, it wasn't great. Like, the kind of dynamics between Chinese students and, like, the rest of the student population started to feel a little funky. Um, And I then, like, heard about my friends who were wearing masks on trains and had their masks ripped off their face. Very luckily, that didn't happen to me. Um, I had, like, a lot of friends, um, one of my friends who, like started getting therapy because of the trauma she had from being attacked for being Chinese. Um and yeah, it's just just was not it was it was it was like a really traumatizing time for I think a lot of us. Um and yeah, and then I guess what really brought kind of this East Asian discrimination to the forefront was when um then there was like the shooting that happened in Atl- in Atlanta in March 2021. Um and then that kind of brought up a lot of like East Asian hate stories start coming out again, um, and how people were being discriminated very casually, and how COVID made it worse. And then now you have the shooting, which which was because a white man fetishized like a bunch of like Asian women, um, East Asian women who are working in like massage, um, in spas, I think, or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's just it was it was it was a really bad year to be um east asian just a horrible particularly horrible year um yeah no, i would say now like that's changed a lot like we like covid is very much no longer just because of one place like we it's really interesting to see how all the countries all the countries deal with it and hong kong for example who's now kind of finally recovering from an omicron outbreak like I think three years after everyone was dealing with COVID in uh in the way that they are dealing with it now. Really, I'm surprised to hear that. I I heard that China were like sort of the first to go through it, go on lockdown, and then you know pack it in. Really, like I thought they were they had it under control basically, and we were the ones that fucked it. <laughs> I would say, <laughs> I would say like 
it was a bit of both. There were, I feel like there was no good way to deal with it because, like, either way, you had a lot of deaths, you had a lot of like tragedies happen in that time period. But the way Hong Kong dealt with it was they were very much lockdown, lockdown, zero COVID policy. And that lasted about three years until Omicron finally arrived in Hong Kong. And this was like, like, a good while after the whole the rest of the wor- world started opening up and just dealing with COVID straight on, and I was like, let's live with it now, let's whatever. And I'm not saying that's a good way either, because that that cost a lot of lives. Um, but in Hong Kong, it was like Hong Kong was going through what the rest of the world were going through like two years ago, finally. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people like were losing it because they went from having zero cases for like months and months to suddenly having like. 7,000 then 50,000 in wow. like two months time um yeah it was really it's just how things have changed and how kind of things turn out at the end yeah and um I didn't want to distract from what you were saying earlier like I'm I'm genuinely like um hurt to hear um the fact that you had to experience and your friends had to also experience like sort of this level of of racist abuse especially from a country that prides itself so much on being progressive um you know and it's i think it also um gives me pause to like think about i don't know how events like global events inspire racism like you know 9-11 sort of was the beginning of you know um muslims being persecuted it wasn't the beginning because i feel like there was you know there were a lot of things actually going on in the 90s with like um terrorist attacks and um they were trying to pin it on brown people anyway because of like um wars in Saddam Hussein and all this other kind of stuff but yeah genuinely like events definitely get the general public it seems or the consensus of people who are sort of on the fence about racism to sort of switch and go yeah I'm gonna go take it out on this scapegoat but it's like regardless of how you feel about that event you're so dumb that you can't think that actually this person has nothing to do with what's going on like i don't i don't get that part of it that events inspire the racism yeah i feel like they're looking for an excuse and that was that was the reason for them to go to like finally do it they were like you know what i can't keep my racism in anymore i need i need to let it free and it's like stop it but you mentioned that like it died like it died down like after covid so are you saying that the racism kind of went <laughs> as COVID numbers like fell? Like, <laughs> is there a proportion there? Like, I think racism was always going to happen, but it wasn't as like, as like viral and like, as like, um, constant as when COVID first started. Cause it was very much pinned and no thanks to Donald Trump being pinned as like a Chinese virus. Um, that is very much just not, that's just not the case anymore. Um, and I think, We've also learned that it's not location specific at this point in time. Um, I'm just thinking a lot about like how when COVID first started, everybody was like talking about how we like eat bats and like stuff like that. And it was like a lot of like casually racist jokes. Yeah. And it's just, I think we've finally, well, a good, a good number of us have the, have been educated that that was just pure ignorance and that was just racist to assume um and just not like pursue those thoughts anymore but um i think like racism just i don't think racism is ever gonna end um because i feel like there's always going to be such an ugly part of humanity that will always fixate on that 
I think it manifests in different ways as well. Um, racism and fetishization have like mm -hmm. very strong parallels. And something I noticed from um, delving into like fashion and culture in the past year was like how many people kind of don't like the racism that they have comes from a place of like yellow fever mm -hmm. um of sexualizing asian women um and coincidentally i'm working on a story right now um for um pink news on um the fetish fetishization of east asians um mm. on tiktok especially and how a lot of mostly white women um kind of put on uh traditional japanese schoolgirl clothing and children's clothes and um change their eye shape to look more asian and basically do what do like basically take part in asian baiting and that's kind of just become this new like new cyber cyber assisted way of like appropriating and like completely twisting um asian culture into something else and it's just we're seeing it happen in more insidious ways how mm -hmm. race is being turned into a commodity um nowadays yeah and the people that are actually from that race never represent the beauty standards or the culture um in which that it's sort of presented to on a more global level like it will be with someone who maybe shares features or is racially ambiguous but never actually you know that that kind of thing but no i'm glad that you brought this subject up actually because it reminds me um i actually read a uh a paper when i studied feminism uh i think about three years ago now that makes me sound old but like um <laughs> it was about it was about yellow fever and about sort of racialized uh sexual fetishes and um sort of the psychology um well the reasoning why um it's wrong and i think this is becoming more of a subject because it's not just um it's not just with asian women it is with sort of any race and plus women will always lead towards men having racialized fetishes but you know certainly from what i was reading because it was doing like a qualitative survey as to why men are just men in it and it was saying that like um uh you know they, they actually see it as like they should take it as a compliment you know like we are usually into you know white women so if we're into a different culture like we're being open-minded here do you know oh what i mean but that, i i i've heard that as well mm. that's the thing i've heard that sort of uh line of thought so i'm glad that you're bringing it up because um the fetishization is just it is a, a, a manifestation of racism and a lot of people also in that paper before i finish is um one one asian woman in the in the paper said like well, you know, I have a I have a white boyfriend and, you know, all of his um, exes were Asian. But at the end of the day, what can you do? Like, I can't change what he likes. And I was thinking like, but no, it's wrong for so many reasons. But then at the same time, this view that sexual attraction or sort of attraction itself is just an innate thing. It's just a thing that happens sort of avoids the fact that actually there's a lot of constructions at play yeah. in wider society that make that the case. 100% like we are conditioned into thinking the way we do because of so many reasons so many heteronormative reasons and structures that were set as like the legacy of our ancestors and it's just not like we we have the progressiveness to think beyond that nowadays we don't need to think like that anymore but like people will just people love using that as an excuse um and to say that like we should take it as a compliment is like why why is it that we need to be objectified and sexualized 
in order to feel validated and attractive. Like, you could be a... Why are we still in the age where attraction isn't, like, you know, having traits that aren't physical? Like, why mm -hmm. Why is that? Why is that such a huge fixation for people? It's just disgusting. The male gaze, I think. That's what it is. Because I feel yeah. like from... I feel like the male gaze... Well, male sense of attraction, masculine senses of attraction, sorry, tend to be quite visual. And um, mm. I, I noticed especially... Um, the more... I guess, like, I, I started learning that my... Um, when my attraction and my sort of uh, beauty standards that I have in my head have been conditioned. I was like, my very idea of what I find attractive, I've always thought was innate because the way that we talk about having types or whatever suggests that actually it's okay to basically say, I'm just not into X group or whatever. I'm just not into, let's say black guys, for example. Like people will say that. People used to say that all the time, like in the playground, not, not, not specifically against black guys, but they would say like, this is my type. This isn't my type. And we just didn't see it as racism because we all had this idea of, well, people just like what they like, but I think if you feel like you are that way, like there is a way that you can sort of change your standard of attraction into something that isn't visual. And I've definitely found that from a lot of women that I've met throughout my life, their sort of um, view of attraction does tend to be like someone's like energy when they're in front of you or like, you know, more of the emotional maturity and basically all the right things that attraction should be <laughs> because something like the thing that should pull you in towards someone is somebody that I don't know, I'm not going to go into what it should be, but it should not only merely be the visual element which racialized fetishes tend to be. Yeah, hundred percent. Like it, it immediately demeans who we are and how much we are actually like what our value is actually worth and all of that. Like I was talking to someone very recently about this that like whenever I have spoken to men a lot of the time, it was because like visually what they see is the product whereas when i talk to women visuals is the entrance mm -hmm. to like a whole freaking amusement park of like things to like actually explore and experience with them and and it's just it's like women and people like pe like people who aren't men that's just the kind of things you can talk about. Like, you you have such in-depth conversations about sexuality, about, like, fashion and culture and gender and politics and controversial, like, social issues. You you have, like, so many in-depth conversations about things where, whereas with a lot of the men I talk to, immediately it's, like, they talk about, they compliment you and then they try to get with you. And it's, like, I, I just want to have a conversation. I just want to talk about things and I just want to, like... I don't want to vibe. Why can't we just vibe? You know, I don't want. I don't want to like immediately just be reduced to like something that's very physical. Like I, I don't. I want to actually understand how you think and what you do and how you feel about things. Um, and I feel like that's down to conditioning as well. Like very active conditioning that people do without realizing. Whether it's using Instagram and liking people to watching porn, like it reinforces the idea that sex. Or attraction is you know visual um even tinder like even dating apps i think it has been reduced now to this whole idea to literally objectification to literally yep you look good or nah you're not you don't look good and i was thinking actually even just yesterday that have you ever that there's this um implicit bias test that's um one of the unis have done in like america and it's like where you just get like flashing pictures of different people and then you swipe then you basically put them uh, in different categories. And I was like, this is fucking Tinder. Like, this is like the, the, this is the state of the dating app game is that it's literally the same mechanism as that implicit bias test. So if you 
if someone has like an implicit bias, like, you know, and it couldn't, it's not, it doesn't have to just be race. It could even be like body, body type is a big one. Do you know what I'm saying? Like mm. you just it, it, it exclude just people, even though that might be kind of the person that's right for you on the basis of, well, looks are the only thing that I can really go off here. And I feel like it isn't just, um, hashtag not just men, but I feel like we all sort of embody like the male gaze, you know, like, and, yeah. and things like dating apps, I feel like show that, you know, even, a lot of women also think this way that the visuals or you know the height or whatever has got to be like the first and foremost thing you know yeah i think we're all kind of like we all are so indoctrinated by like the male gaze we grew up with it we were taught from young age through a male gaze to look at things on like the playground to like literally on the streets nowadays like we were trained to look at things from that in that way and like when I was starting to experiment a lot with, like, fashion um, and aesthetics the past, like, two years, I was kind of untraining from, like, how I was taught to look at things. Because when I was in previous relationships, I used to think, like, whatever the person I was with wanted, I would try to look like that. And mm. that, a lot of time, that was, that person was a man. So I was mm. like, oh, I want to, like, look like that to fulfill their needs. Mm -hmm. And I never really... So, like, for a long time, I was like, I'm not going to wear makeup because mm. he was like, oh, I don't like girls who wear makeup. And I was like, mm. okay, no worries. I'll do that. And then when I didn't, like, try out makeup for the first time um, and, like, full force, you know, doing color liner and color shadows and all of that, and then, like, wearing, like, more out there kind of outfits, I was like, wow, this is so much fun. And I distinctly remember one time, like I wore, I wore like flared pattern pants and then like a like a crop top and like a puffer jacket to Nando's of all places. I was just like, I was going for a nice dinner with mm -hmm. my ex boyfriend, and he was like, "Why are you wearing that? Why are you wearing that? Like you should not. Everybody's staring at you right now. Everybody's looking at you." And I was like, "What? What? Do you want me to go home and change?" And he was like, "Why are you like you're that's so bad. This is." everybody's looking at you right now is because of what you're wearing and i'm like why is it always what we're wearing why don't and i bet like, nobody actually gave a fuck in that nando's as well nobody like, everyone was enjoying their chicken they're like raw this is this is, this is a nice place of chicken and i was yeah. just sitting there like why why am i feeling bad for wearing this because i thought i would look cute um and yeah now that i like have not I don't look at my clothes through the male gaze. I don't look at my appearance through the male gaze. It is such a freeing feeling. I don't care if, like, what my makeup is like nowadays, like, today mm. is, like, completely unconventional. It's not mm. something, like, that is conventionally attractive. Mm -hmm. If I feel like I have creatively expressed myself and I'll be walking around the whole day as a piece of art that I appreciate, not because of another man, then I'm fine. I'm happy with it. That's just all I. That's just all I ask for. <laughs> yeah. No. Hundred percent. And like you know, I'm glad that you've um, basically got to that point of basically saying that guy ain't shit, and <laughs> you know, basically doing you. Uh, but I suppose like on this subject, um, I I also read a paper um like three years ago as well about sort of um objectification and empowerment and how they can both sort of look the same, um, but you know. It, it, the motivation underlying it can be different and like i guess it was looking at um it was a study basically looking at uh teenage girls and the way that they use instagram and uh whether their uh, reasons for sort of posting more sexualized or out there pictures was a result of objectification for fulfilling a male gaze or it was more 
to do with empowerment. And actually the study found that it was inconclusive, like the, cause firstly it's difficult to measure that. Like how the fuck can you tell, especially <laughs> these very abstract concepts, like, and how can you actually rely on honest reporting? How can you expect even a, you know, any, any person to understand that at any sort of age? But I guess, uh, despite saying that, I mean, like, do, can you, can you tell, like, can you tell when, Hey, I'm, be, I'm doing this for objectification reasons, or I'm doing this for empowerment reasons? Honestly, I feel like it's so easily confused. It's actually a conversation I have all the time with my friends. Like, bringing it back to that <laughs> terrible relationship I was in. Like, I, when I first started wearing makeup, I was like, I'm wearing makeup because he didn't let me wear makeup. So mm. I'm breaking out of that, like, way, the way I used to be objectified. And now I'm empowered again. But then I was like, I don't want to be empowered because I'm wearing makeup to rebel against him. So once I feel like I'm not rebelling against him anymore, I wouldn't want to wear makeup anymore. So the fact that I kept wearing makeup anyway, I was like, I'm far beyond this relationship. I am loving putting colors on my face. Then I knew mm. that like I was empowered. I wasn't like trying to make a statement to like be anti-objectified. And it wasn't mm. because I was traumatized and therefore trying to empower myself. Mm -hmm. Um... But I think, I think, like, when you examine, I feel like it's a very personal, it's a very personal decision um, and perception. Because it could come off as you're objectifying, objectifying yourself, but, like, really you're actually empowering yourself. And it's such, like, I feel like it's a very personal choice to do that. And it's something that you can't, on, you can't always get an honest answer out of mm -hmm. people. Because you can have a lot of people who are very stuck in the way that they think and have not necessarily explored who they really are, who are still mm -hmm. self-objectifying through the male gaze, who are like, I am empowering myself by hypersexualizing myself. Um, but there are certainly loads of people who hypersexualize themselves as a way of empowerment. If if we look at like, for example, the bimbification of, of a lot of women nowadays, how they indulge in hyperfeminine like um aesthetics and like oh, so many like pink clothes that accentuate so many different parts of their body and it's because like they just they're just sick of it they just want to wear what they want and they're sick of like pink being seen as it's like kind of like a legally blonde situation just because someone's wearing pink doesn't mean they're stupid um yeah. and i think that's really dismantling a lot of stereotypes but there's such a blurry line between objectification and empowerment because like to be objectified is to be looked through the male gaze and to be empowered is to use elements of the male gaze to say like hey mm. fuck you actually like i'm actually using this to you know show that i can look the way i want despite of despite how you look at me um wow that's a really, really good hard. way of explaining it sorry that that's a really good way of explaining <laughs> like i thought i thought i sounded mad confusing no no that that makes a lot of sense like you know it's it's still the male gaze it's like it's a response to it either way but instead of being like i'm not gonna fulfill your needs i'm gonna sort of like yeah weaponize it against you do you know what i'm saying and that is that is empowering for sure 100 percent. i completely get that yeah um and it obviously it becomes more of a complicated thing though um especially when like racialized fetishes like we we're discussing earlier come into play because um yeah like the the level of objectification is or not necessarily a level because i can't say it's necessarily more or less than someone else has been objectified at the end of the day it's still the same thing but it's like it ma it manifests itself very differently depending on whatever nationality you are um and it also must be a minefield like 
um in dating to sort of know um whether someone is into you uh because of your ethnicity you know i i even i experienced this you know like quite a lot actually like knowing you know are you with me um because you want to get an experience an exotic experience out of this or not the e-word. and you have to second guess yourself all the time when you're of color in any kind of like ethnicity or race yeah it's really really hard it's really hard to know whether or not you are whether you're not like you're on someone's checklist where you're like yep i dated a chinese girl moving on to the next race and it's just like yeah. there are definitely people who are like that um mm. that i have come across and i absolutely i it was vile but it's it's really really hard to not constantly doubt whether or not you're someone's minority card you know mm-hmm. it's like someone's collecting pokemon cards and you don't like you don't know if you're one of the pokemon cards or you're just one of you know their friend looking at them do that and it's just it's really sad it's like when a lot of times minorities are reduced to being the token person in the room it's always it's kind of because it happens to us so often we tend to Im- immediately like in a lot of situations think like are we just there because we are the token hire or mm-hmm. we're the token like uh, poc friend or mm-hmm. we're the token um i have a ex friend so therefore i can make this racist joke kind of friend mm-hmm. and it's so tiring but it's something we constantly have to think about um because of our race and this kind of invention of like brutality against us like they're we just constantly have this at the back of our minds and it sucks um and when it when you kind of mix that with romance and sex that becomes Mm -hmm. a whole other can of Mm -hmm. worms honestly yeah no absolutely it does it's um it just makes everything a a whole lot more like complicated because it's not even just before people think that it's a lot of white heating going on like i actually hear that you know people from like anyone can can you know fetishize anyone like even if you're uh, belonging to the same race i think you absolutely can still fetishize women um in your own culture 100%. Uh, for example like i hear it a lot from um actually uh some of my friends that are black women um actually say that it's you know sadly more difficult to actually date like uh certain black men because you know if they're more light-skinned that they'll you know sort of be into that more because that they have lighter skin colors and like this colorism sort of thing yeah also plays another part like so once you get past the race part then it's like all right then what about like you know where do you sit with that do you have this view that you know lighter people are like more superior and it's like fucking hell it's such a minefield <laughs> to like find someone that just sees you as a person there's so many fucking barriers like it literally for sure. is um colorism is like such a huge like problem um and just like when a lot of the times when we can't be intersectional and we default to being like this is a more important issue than whatever you're going through and it creates a lot of division within communities that's the absolute worst um it's just it's just bad like i, I remember when this is a really like this is br- this is bringing us back to like the start of this podcast but um when the hong kong protests were happening and this is not to like undercut the protests at all because a lot of the ha- a lot of times when you bring up issues with a protest or issues with a social issue then it becomes undercut with this other issue anyway mm-hmm. i'm gonna start say i'm gonna stop saying issue so many times <laughs> but right. back during the protests um a lot of people were like paralleling the black lives matter movement with like the hong kong protests and i was like stop it no 
don't compare the two. They're two very different things. The things you could, like, compare, or you can, like, talk about in unison is the fact that police brutality has to stop. Um, a lot of people in Hong Kong, because Donald, okay, this is, Donald Trump was like, you know, um, what, what did he say? He was like, oh yeah, Hong Kong people shouldn't, like, be oppressed by the Chinese government. And because of that, a lot of Hong Kongers who were in complete desperation and despair were like, Donald Trump is now our savior. And it's like, please, why did you have to go to such a huge extreme? He stands completely against everything we're, we're standing for. Anyway, after that happened, a lot of people started protecting Trump. Um, a lot of Hong Kong people started protecting Trump, saying like, well, the Black Lives Matter Matters movement is so much worse and, you know, you're causing a lot of problems for Donald Trump, so you, therefore you're the problem. And it's like, please... Can we, like, can we acknowledge the fact that, like, police brutality is, is terrible and this is what the Hong Kong protests and Black Lives Matter has brought to the forefront? And can we not divide and can we just, you know, acknowledge that these are both terrible things and we can, like, help each other as communities to, like, help each other survive stuff like this? Mm. Um, yeah, like, I, I hate it. I hate the kind of colorism and the kind of, like, hierarchies that happen within social movements because it really puts me off actually like engaging in those communities like i will continue to like do what i can to help but i don't want to engage in those discussions that get so toxic absolutely yeah and i feel like this is the thing is that you know to have this kind of experience in the west or you know any kind of country that's you know more international like your experience as a minority is being part of that it's not like you can even necessarily seek refuge in your own communities because people have some backward ass views in fact more so because they don't you know and i i think there's like i i struggle to completely blame them as well when you know things are so dire in your home country that you are looking for kind of like any sort of savior or any kind of like way out and actually back that option because at the end of the day it's your survival sort of mechanisms that become activated at that point and um there's also sort of maybe certain times like um lesser access to education in certain places so when some people um have like fairly like what seem to be radical or like kind of unreasonable views let's say like you know part of that is because you know they, they don't really have the opportunity to be either educated in the right ways or media is just misinforming so when they have that impulse of yeah i want to go inform myself what they actually get is misled by um a lot of shit and i feel that happens more and more um actually speaking on that subject um so one thing that i, I noticed about you was that you know you actually got into pink news uh through uh tiktok sort of journalism and i was wondering what what kind of um TikTok and journalism, those feels like things that I've never thought could really like mesh because on TikTok you're looking for entertainment and stuff. But so what what kind of found what kind of inspired you to sort of like, I don't know, see that as a outlet for your like journalistic skills? Yeah. I, I okay, I'm gonna cover I think what you mentioned earlier about like education and stuff, um, as well. Because I think being able to like understand that for example, bring it back to the Donald Trump example, being able to understand that Donald Trump is a horrible figure, a horrible person to, person to look up to, um, when you're not from the US and when you're like from like Hong Kong, for example, um, the, the, there's a privilege that comes into that. Like being able to make my, make my documentary, for example, and go to all these places and interview all these people, it comes from a place of privilege that I was be I was able to go to these places and I was able to look at it from a different perspective of like being having consumed so much knowledge 
from so many different sources and places around the world and like media in general and um yeah and i think it contributes a lot to like how people think and how toxic communities can get because you have a very different level of privilege um of like how much you how much access you have to information um and i don't think and i think like i want to use that as a way of like educating more people of the fact that there's this huge hierarchy because of so many institutional issues in the first place that put us in these different places where we're not as knowledgeable as other people or we're able to like access more information as other people um so it kind of slightly ties to the tiktok and journalism bit because mm. when i got to this country i was finally able to download tiktok wow. um and because it was banned in hong kong i think i don't even remember why it was it was something to do with the government and like covid slash protests you know Mm. and i was like well i can't have it i downloaded tiktok when i I started my masters and um tiktok is like (sighs) very complicated feelings about it because um personally i'm not as keen to make videos on tiktok anymore because i am now trying to like lead a more private life i'm like i don't really want the internet to see that many sides of me Mm. so um i've been cleaning up my social media a lot Mm. Um, but I, like, I, what I really noticed is that a lot of journalists like using TikTok as a source of information. And I still do. I literally have, like, 10 tabs open of, like, TikTok videos I'm going to include in my script, um, for this video, um, I'm doing on Asian fetishization. Um, but TikTok is a really useful resource. Um, and I think it's very much, like, undercut by a lot of, like, prejudices about this was a teen's dancing app. But it's not, it's so much more than that now. You get so much in, informative educational stuff that you do, you wouldn't normally get from mainstream media. Like, the, the, the closest you can get to it is literally, literally like a Vice article. Um, if you're here. Um, and, like, I started to tap into it because, first of all, I really needed a job. I was like, having TikTok is going to be a huge edge. I'm going to be like, I know how to make TikToks, guys. You know, hire me, please. <laughs> Um, and it worked, you know, a lot of people like really like that, you know, how to use TikTok because like yeah. every single media company wants to get on that platform properly. Um, and I think like what I really wanted to, I like really harnessed it as a way of like trying to, trying to make videos that weren't like boring, dry news packages because I was able to like edit um, a Keeping Up With The Kardashian style um, tiktok series of uh what my master's course is like which was very catty i mean the video itself was i'm not making a comment on whether or not my journalism course was catty i have that's i'm not gonna comment on that um but it was a lot of fun because i get to experience a very different video format um and i would say that tiktok isn't a good platform for for breaking news but it's a really good platform for finding out things that are eventually going to be part of the cultural zeitgeist like you get to find out a lot of like niche things that mainstream media don't know about yet um and you get to find out like all these reactions and you get a lot of creative creativity there whether it's like remixes of the chris rock will smith slap or it's like people like um just remixing keep uh kim kardashian saying you should like get your fucking ass up and work that that's oh, just yeah, hilarious yeah. to me so funny um but yeah, it's like a really good place to kind of use use for journalism, but also like put out journalism. Um, but I think like a lot of places find it like a lot of companies find it really hard to nail the format. Um, so I think if anyone wants to get into TikTok for journalism, 
or just want to get a, just wants to get into TikTok in general, I would definitely um recommend them following Ryan Air and Duolingo because they are hilarious. Their TikTok content is a top tier, unbeatable. Really? So funny. Yeah, Duolingo Ryan is Air. thirsty. I mean, Duolingo, I'm I'm not surprised about. It. They've always been a bit with it, but fucking Ryanair. You know the CEO Ryanair said like, "Yep, we need to make sure that we're checking Muslim passengers that board our planes." Like, and I'm just oh, surprised what? that this guy's on TikTok like and body in the game. Like, fair, fair play to him, I guess. Like, yeah, it's actually quite surprising. Like he, I I think one of his interns, I wouldn't say him, well, but his interns are really doing the most on TikTok. And you get a lot of brands and a lot of like news outlets that are great for teens, but are actually terrible in real life. Um, mm. And Ryanair is a good example of that. But yeah, they've really nailed the the they've really nailed the format of how to connect with their customers in the same yeah. way that Doja Cat has really nailed how to connect with fans with her TikTok account, for example. Mm. Um, but yeah, TikTok is a very, very interesting place. Um, I would say though, now that I am, now that I've like thought about it and have had TikTok for like two years, um, I would want to focus on it more as a place of entertainment, and not as a place of constantly reporting mm -hmm. on things anymore. Unless my job ha like asks me to, in which case I will try to devise like a good formula to make TikTok videos. Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, I think it makes sense that, you know, I mean, what what I've learned about you and what I admire about you so much is not only do you have journalistic integrity, which I feel like is something slipping away more and more as the years go on, uh, because, you know, I've always grown up with a, I think I've always grown up like trying to like understanding that my skills are quite fit for journalism, but I've always been ideologically sort of opposed to it because i'm like oh man but the people that i know who want to be journalists are full of shit anyway so like i don't know i think the thing is is that you have that journalistic integrity but also like the initiative to actually go out and record and actually produce something which takes takes hustle you know takes scheme it, it takes something more than just being a writer or having a cause it takes like actual like hustle and you're also understanding how it fits into a modern audience and like how you can leverage things like TikTok or, you know, making videos and stuff to really get your point across in an accessible way. In my opinion, like someone like you is what, you know, if I, understanding that, you know, you are the future of journalism makes me feel like bright knowing that there are people with your uh, skill sets and like, you know, all blended together to make you into this person that really is just self-made and, and doing it on your own. And I think... We just need more of that. So, like, I don't know. Carry on, please. Make more stuff. Like, have you got anything else in the works? Like, you mentioned this video. This is going to be more of like a a solo thing, right? Because it's less about documenting and more of like a a video essay. I think this is um, it's still for Pink News's Snapchat channel, Pink News Reports, but basically, it's about something that's quite close to my identity. So, I'm in particular quite like. Like, I feel like a lot of the stuff that I'm writing about in this script is something that I've experienced and something that I've seen in this in the communities that I'm part of. Um, so I'm quite excited for it to come out. Um, I yeah, I'm quite excited to see it, to see, like, people become educated on this, like, topic that's that I've experienced my whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's going to be very interesting. But, um, yeah, the thing about, like, being today's like the being part of the journalism of today is that what put me off from 
joining this industry was because of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, very thankfully, I am part of a very, very good. I'm in very good hands for with where I work. Um, but there's a lot of like reasons why I didn't want to get into the industry. Um, because of the culture and because of how toxic it could get. But I guess that you know you could say the same about like every other industry. But for this one, I was very scared of like the egos, um, and like just the competitiveness because that's something that I from the religious trauma that I experienced I was like I don't want to be competitive I don't want to I don't want to like tap into that part of me but thankfully I'm in an environment where I'm not competing and I don't I'm able to like train myself out of that mindset um so yeah very very lucky that I get to do that yeah and I'm glad that publications exist that can make you feel like I'm actually doing like good work or you know you're mostly just doing something that you enjoy doing and you know you're giving back because journalism is very very important it's incredibly important like you know I don't know if I believe in democracy or not that's a different subject but I feel at the end of the day we need to have like journalistic integrity to be principles that people believe in very deeply so we are not misled and this becomes more and more of an issue especially when editorial standards i think especially in things like tiktok and social media are becoming a thing that people don't even care about anymore like we've now have got to that point in human society where we're not really fact checking our sources like we trade that for entertainment now you know we it started off with i suppose making information entertainment and now we just want the entertainment and we don't want the information no more um so i think you're in a very good position to basically especially with longer form content because you know how you mentioned that actually with tiktok you know you're getting second thoughts about it and you know maybe you don't want to be making content on that i think that makes a lot of sense because i think long form content will allow you to explore your ideas and you know people can understand your personality more as well like your voice um better through like you know like for example this documentary or this video that you're making yeah, there's actually like lots of East Asian like YouTubers that are, um or just Asian YouTubers in general that are really that have really really nailed the video essay format. Hmm. And they just like, kind of like sit from the camera and talk about like things that are very much topical in any kind of place whether it's entertainment or it's like political issues or it's like literally anything. And I think I've I'm very inspired by them. And one day I want to be able to make that kind of YouTube video to kind of really dissect things that I'm really passionate about. I think that'll be lots of fun. Um, but mostly I don't want to be a YouTuber. I don't want, I don't, yeah. I don't know if I want to be part of that life, you know, it's a lot of stress. Yeah. I actually had this same thinking like a year ago, which is really funny. Like I was like, yeah, you know, I, uh, I like writing, you know, uh, I, I don't, I don't want to align with no journalistic sort of, I don't want to align with no like pr- uh, publication. I know I'll fucking make videos for cozy. Yeah. I'll just take my articles and I make them into videos. And I was like, wait, <laughs> then I actually got to the fucking point of standing in front of a camera and actually recording it. And I was like, this, ah, f- fuck this. Like, I don't know. It just wasn't, it wasn't going in. And that's why, that's where the podcast has come from. Because I think I don't want to seem like I know what I'm talking about because I don't, I really, really don't. Like, I'm just curious. I, I, I would rather like it be if if something's gonna go if i'm gonna put something out there in the world i would rather that i looked ignorant and i was asking questions and enabling my curiosity rather than saying to people this is what this is what's happening because i think i'd always be kind of full of it if i kind of went with that attitude do you know what i mean i think it's good it's good to always be like curious and i think it's good to i think a lot of people nowadays act like they know everything but they don't and i think it goes back to like you know just not being reliable you know you're not a reliable source of information if you don't admit admit the fact that there are some things you don't know and Mm -hmm. there are some things that you will never know about 
Mm. I think that's a really important admittance when you're like putting out content for people from like all around the world. Like you, you are always going to like miss out like some things, but being able to acknowledge that is like so important because nowadays you really don't know what's right and what's wrong. It's really hard to like fact check. It's really hard to verify things. I guess in general, are you mostly optimistic or pessimistic about the future of journalism? I would say optimistic, depending on what we mean by the future of journalism. Because I feel like journalism itself, the definition of it and the, the vision of it is going to change very drastically with the introduction of a lot of like social media platforms with the metaverse i hate saying that word but like with the metaverse and tiktok and all that it's going to change very drastically and it's going to be represented by people that are that were very traditionally not represented it not represented in the media so whether it's like younger people of color again it's not a term that i'm not sure about (laughs) but whether it's like young people people of color from all around the world that's going to be the new face of journalism and actually like changing the industry for good um i think that makes me optimistic um for the future of journalism 